I hope you've been enjoying this challenge of these weekly Lenten uh, practices as we've been giving up TV, we've been giving up um, ice cream for me, for junk food and other things as well. And as we look forward to what's next, all of this time has been a time of preparation. And for those of you who are interested, you might be thinking, hey, what is uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday gonna look like? So we're gonna have um, classical hymns and brand new uh, modern worship songs as well. Both of them are gonna be easy to sing. On Good Friday, we're gonna have a really special way of practicing communion. On Sunday, there's gonna be not one or two or three baptisms, but we are going to celebrate 12 people getting baptized on Easter Sunday. It is going to be a wonderful time together. I hope you're able to join us on both of those days. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have of coming to worship you together. And God, we pray that you would do something special in our hearts this very day, that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and that we would respond by the way that your Holy Spirit is working in our lives. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. There is a cost to discipleship. In the late 1700s, a group of English Baptist ministers got together and a young man stood up and he wanted to talk about the engagement of overseas missions. One of the older ministers stood up, interrupted him and said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. And if God wants the world to change, God will do it with or without us. Thankfully, that young man chose not to sit down. And he became the father of modern missions. His name is William Carey. William Carey grew up in an obscure rural village in England and became a shoemaker as an apprentice. And he quickly became a follower of Jesus by the person who was um, overseeing him and recognized that there was something really special here. Eventually, he took over this little shoemaking practice. But unfortunately, due to where he was and the time and season it was in England's history, he was unable to make it happen. And so he decided, if I can't be a shoemaker, I'm gonna be a minister for the gospel. And during this time, some missionaries came in and were talking to him and some others about what was taking place overseas. And William Carey was captured by this vision and said, I want to be a part of that. And so not only once, but on another occasion, he stood up in front of a group of Baptist pastors, a group of Baptist congregants, and he said, how dare we sit here so comfortably while our neighbors and people around the world are going to hell because they don't hear about Jesus? Once again, he was shut down. In 1792, he recognized enough talk, I need to put this into practice. And so he started his own missions organization. One year later, him and his wife and three kids traveled from England to India where they were going to start telling the Indian people about who Jesus was. It was way harder than he could have ever imagined. The poverty continued to follow him. He had to travel around just to make ends meet. The funding wasn't coming in. There was loneliness and sickness and regret. God, is this where you want me to be? If that wasn't difficult enough, there was a time where he contracted malaria and one of his children passed away. His wife, unable to deal with a sick husband and a, a, the passing of one of their children, had a downward spiral. She just couldn't handle it anymore. She eventually went a little bit crazy. She thought her husband was having an affair. She thought that this mission was just not doing what it was supposed to do, and she actually attacked her husband with a knife. He wrote in his journal later on, I love my wife. I love my God. But I am in the midst of the shadow of the valley of death. And yet I praise God that I am here and that he is here with me. He ministered in India for seven years before finally baptizing his first convert. And you think, how does a man like that become the father of modern missions? 
Over the next 30 years, he had the privilege of seeing 700 people come to faith. He translated five different Indian dialects into the New Testament. He saw social reform in his area of India and even set up an Indian seminary so that people could hear the good news and spread it on around the world. But it came at great personal cost. Poverty, sickness, the loss of family members. And to the best of my knowledge, he never returned home to India. William Carey is a game changer. He recognized that there's something on, there's, there's something going on that if we believe this good news of Jesus, it has to be spread around, that people have to hear the good news of who he is and what he has done. Today's message is a good message, but it's going to be a hard message. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter nine. If you're brand new to church, there should be a Bible in the pew racks in front of you. If you're online, welcome here. We're so glad you're worshiping with us. You can download an app on your phone, your tablet, or follow along on your laptop. We're in the gospel of Luke, which means it's in the New Testament. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. A little bit of context as you start opening up. The Gospel of Luke, like most books of the Bible, has some movements to it. And one of the movement that we've just finished is Jesus' ministry all around Galilee. It's about from the middle of chapter four to nine, verse 50. And for these five chapters, we've been following along and seeing what God is doing and that the disciples and other people in the land are amazed at Jesus. They're amazed at his teaching. They're amazed at his miracles. They're amazed that he's casting out demons. They're amazed at who he is as a person. But then we hit nine, verse 50. And this is what it says in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's such a pivotal watershed moment that I opened up my commentary to see what was going to happen next. And I realized my commentary ended at verse 50. The rest of the sermon, just winging it. Wow, that no laughter at all. Sorry about that. <laughs> Joke landed in the first service. And so they show up in the Samaritan village and the Samaritans want to have nothing to do with them. And the disciples are a little surprised. They said, Jesus, these people have been following you. You actually sent us out two by two and we were preaching the kingdom of God. We were telling people about Jesus. We were performing miracles. We were casting out demons. The Samaritans want to have nothing to do with us. And so Luke has set the stage. It's not all going to be rainbows and butterflies. There are going to be some real challenges along the way as well, picking up in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Obviously, Jesus never took a leadership class in seminary. Jesus, this is your opportunity to tell people about how great the kingdom of God is. This is your opportunity to cast a vision and to say, this is what I'm calling you towards. People don't want to hear, it's going to be really difficult. Maybe this man could be recruited. Maybe he could help out with children's ministry. Maybe he's a gifted teacher and could lead a small group. Why are you saying it's going to be hard? That's not how vision is cast. But Jesus is the greatest game changer in the history of the world. He's the greatest leader in the history of the world. And he knows this is exactly how vision is cast. And that to become a follower of Jesus means there is going to be a cost. And if you enjoy taking notes, the first part of our outline this morning is to consider the cost. 
Between the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only Matthew has a parallel account, and he adds some color to the story by simply changing one word. Our account says, a man came up to him. For Matthew, he says, a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The scribe in the first century was part of the religious leadership. And don't confuse the word scribe by simply thinking um, he was a copyright or, or took dictation. He was an intelligent man, an expert in handling written documents, well-educated, probably very financially well-off. His work included teaching, interpretation, and the regulation of the law. His actual day-to-day -day activities would look a lot more like a lawyer than what we would picture as a scribe. Now this scribe, like many people who had been following Jesus, came up to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. I recognize your teaching of the Old Testament, what the Jews would call the Tanakh, is like nothing I've ever heard before. And I want to attach myself to you. I want to follow you around. I want to see what it's like and to hear you and to watch you perform miracles and to be a part of what you're doing. One little aside before we go further, there's going to be three rapid-fire interactions that take place. Not once does Jesus tell the people not to follow him, and not once do we find out if the people actually choose to follow him or remain at home. Luke's proposal here is for you and for me. Will you consider the cost of discipleship? To follow Jesus means to enter a brand new kingdom. And this, this student of the law, he might be like a modern day philosopher or one of your wise friends from work or school who think, yeah, that what Jesus teaches and the ethics seems fascinating, but I don't know about the rest of that. But this is so much more than just philosophy and ethics. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you into a brand new kingdom that is radically different than what you're accustomed to. My dad retired a few years ago, and one of the hobbies he's taken up in his retirement is finding out how did my um, parents and my grandparents come to Canada. And so he's been looking into this and finding out a little bit more about it, and even though I'm German, my, my ancestors actually were from Ukraine. And so my dad was looking into what did it mean and what did it look like, and he recognized there was incredible cost involved. And they had to cost actually had to be paid up front, or my parents came from a Mennonite background. The Mennonites would pay for it, and they would have to pay them back over the years of arriving back in Canada. It would be incredibly difficult to escape during the war, but the family who had already arrived in Canada said, you gotta be here. It's way better than Russia and Germany and Ukraine and all the challenges that are happening around you. But there was a cost to consider. It would be a brand new language to learn. You would start from scratch because you wouldn't have the jobs or the farms that you had back in Eastern Europe. There would be a brand new people, a brand new group, a brand new language, a brand new politics, a brand new culture, a brand new kingdom, just like what we as followers of Christ have to engage with. My ancestors had to consider the cost. Our Chinese brothers and sisters, our African brothers and sisters, and others of you who have immigrated from other nations understand this cost more than those of us who have grown up in Canada and the U.S., there's discussions that have to take place. There's sacrifice that's necessary, and there's this discussion, how difficult is this journey going to be? It's the reason I think prosperity preachers are so hard on North American Christianity. Because prosperity preachers stand up and say, believe in Jesus, and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But the gospel only progresses through suffering and sacrifice. And so the scribe may have looked at Jesus and thought, here's my chance. 
I'm financially well off. I have a beautiful family. If I attach myself to the coattails of Jesus, things are going to go really well for me. And I love to learn. There's a cost to discipleship, and we should never be surprised when suffering comes. How is the gospel going to spread when we sit on our couches watching that next episode of Netflix? How are missionaries supposed to be sent overseas if we refuse to fund them? How are things going to happen when we do nothing about it? How is good going to can take over the world with the good news of Jesus when we continue to let evil exist? We have to be a part of what God is calling us to do. There's a reason William Carey said, multitudes sit in ease and comfort, giving no care for their neighbors who are destined for hell. We talk about Jesus being Lord and Savior, but do we really grasp what that means? I think we enjoy that Savior part. Oh, he's gonna save us from sin. He's gonna save us from death. He's gonna save us from the fires of hell. That sounds awesome. But do we embrace that part about Jesus being Lord? Do we invite him to be the king of our lives, the king of our world? Jesus is the one who sits on the throne. Are we willing to obey him? There is a cost to discipleship. If you're a note taker, even if you're not a note taker, I invite you to write these next four ideas down. It's not an uh, an extensive list that covers every sort of idea, but it's a level of commitments that we say, are we ready for that? The first commitment I think is one that the scribe understood well. There's an ethical commitment taking place. And he recognizes following Jesus that it looks beautiful. Here's a man who interprets the Old Testament in a way that I've never seen before. That's something that I want to be a part of. But how many times have you interacted with people, I know I have regularly, both inside the church and outside the church, who think, you know, Jesus is a great teacher. He's a great ethicist. Jesus I like, but the rest of the stuff, I'm not so sure. But as soon as we decide what we like and what we don't like, we put ourselves on that throne and say to Jesus, you know what, take a hike, I've got this from here. What about time? This past week I've been wrestling regularly with this whole idea of idolatry and how much does idolatry come into a message on discipleship? The answer, if you're wondering, not much. But we think about the Old Testament, we think about the first century, and we see people worship gods of of wood and gods of stone. We go, oh, how silly of them. But we have gods that we worship all the time. The gods that people talk about regularly in North America during this time are money, power, and sex. But I think there's a fourth god we worship even more than that. We worship this god of comfort. And we think, I can't wait to get home so I can sit in front of my TV. I can't wait to get home and to work on my next hobby. And when you look at your calendar, how many disciple-making activities are taking place? There's a financial commitment. As followers of Jesus, we are not sole owners of the money that he gives us, nor are we slaves to the money he gives us. We are the stewards of the money that he gives to us. How are we going to handle that money well? I was on holidays last week and I happened to run into a Greek Orthodox priest. And I have no idea how the conversation started, but he said to me, oh man, I wish my people gave like your people. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he goes, I can't give my congregation to give 1%. And I stood up in front of my church and I said, we need to give back to God. And one of them said to me afterwards, we don't do that. That's what Baptists do. (laughs) So let's do it well and give back to God. Final thing, is there a relational commitment? 
Writing to the church in Rome, Paul pens these words, not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You're a smart group of people. And I don't think I need to unpack this much. When you think of your personal relationships, are they helping? Are you helping them or are you hurting them? If you think that first interaction was a little bit rough, Jesus really goes for the jugular on this second one, picking up in verse 59. To another person, Jesus said, follow me. But he said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this should not be read that Jesus does not care about family, but when we serve our family, it should be out of obedience to Jesus, not instead of obedience to Jesus. In this man's case, Jesus was not his highest commitment, and it leads us to the second point. Put Jesus first. At first glance, words like these ones that Jesus spoke to this man and others might seem exceedingly harsh. If you were to flip over to Luke chapter 14, 26, there's a passage that most people really struggle with. Jesus says to people, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But Jesus is not literally telling us to hate our family. Commandment number five on God's top 10 list, he writes, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. In the midst of being crucified, when he was literally hanging on a cross, he says at the end of the Gospel of John, we read Jesus saw his mother there, the other disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son and to the disciple, here is your mother. Jesus cares immensely about family. But he says, you have to put me first in the midst of that. Matthew describes it well, where he says in 10 verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In a phrase, put Jesus first. Now you might say, Dave, the guy wants to bury his dad. That seems like a legitimate request. And at first glance it does, but there's something on, else going on behind the scenes as well. The phrase, I must bury my father, was a common figure of speech that means, just wait until I receive my inheritance. In other words, his dad probably hadn't passed away. But even if his dad had already passed away, the Jewish burial ceremony lasted for an entire year. It starts with um, placing your loved one into the ground, and then there's a whole year of weeping and mourning, a year of the first birthdays, a year of the first festivals, a year of the first family gatherings. Then you take your um, loved one up out of the ground, take his bones, put it in a small box, and place it in something similar to what we would have as a mausoleum. It's a long time. But finally, there's a stark contrast taking place. This man is saying, I don't, I don't want to put you first. But when we think about how Jesus called the disciples, they dropped everything. The men in the boats who were fishermen, Jesus comes up to them and says, follow me. And they leave their boats, they leave their nets, and immediately start following Jesus. Levi, whose other name is Matthew, who wrote the first gospel, was a tax collector. Extremely lucrative, probably very wealthy. Side note, the fishermen and tax collectors hated each other, so that would have been a really interesting first couple of months. Jesus looks at Matthew and he says, follow me. Matthew gets up, leaves it behind, and follows Jesus. 
The king has spoken and he makes it abundantly clear. Consider the cost, put me first. Now maybe this language is a little bit strong. Maybe you're not used to such strong callings of discipleship, so I'm just gonna keep it going. If anything is more important to you than Jesus, it will kill you. Now you might look at that and say, Dave, come on, stop doing that whole pastoral exaggeration thing. So I'm gonna get really vulnerable. Right after I became lead pastor, it was about a year ago, someone who loves me and cares about me is a few years down the road than I am, pulled me aside and he said, Dave, I love you and I voted for you. He goes, I think you're a decent preacher, you're gonna get better. I think you're a decent leader, you're gonna get better. But there's one area that can really be a stumbling block. Do you know what it is? I said, yep. He goes, Dave, what's that one area that's gonna be a stumbling block? I said, I'm a people pleaser. And he goes, yeah, that's gonna be hard for you. Over the last year, we've um, been sort of coming out of COVID. And you can probably tell by the empty pews around you that people have moved, people have changed, people have stopped coming to the church. Now, when somebody moves out of town, you go, God bless you, um, where's the town? Maybe I know a good church that I can recommend. Some people have started going to churches to support family members. Good for you, God bless you. Some people, unfortunately, have said, you know, I thought over COVID, God's not that important. And it breaks my heart. And some people will say, Dave, I don't like you. I don't like your preaching. I don't like your leadership. I don't like where we are going as a church. Goodbye. And it breaks my heart. And I lose sleep at night. And I have literally spent hundreds of dollars talking to counselors. And if I focus on the person, I recognize it's gonna eat me up inside. But if I focus on God and recognize there's something better, there's something more valuable here, the things of this world aren't as important. Put Jesus first. Now, we don't know from this passage if the man's dad is alive or not, but let's say for sake of argument, he is alive. And I wonder if he was thinking, you know, I would follow Jesus, but if I follow Jesus and my dad doesn't like it, go, goodbye inheritance. And I wonder how many of us are looking at rising gas prices and rising mortgage rates and rising prices at the grocery store, and we're going, God, I don't know how to afford this anymore. I don't have enough money. My, my salary stayed the same, but cost of living of going up, and I don't know if I can do this and we've removed our eyes from focusing on Jesus. And I wonder how many of us are in broken relationships with significant others, or we're longing to be in a relationship with somebody, or we've lost a really good friend over COVID, and we're thinking, God, it's not fair, it's just so lonely, and it's killing you inside. And I wonder how many of you are hearing this message and going, you know, this teaching is really hard, but maybe there's something there. That maybe if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, something better is available to us. A hundred years ago, a woman by the name of Helen Lemmel wrote a hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And it includes the simple refrain, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When we put Jesus first, when we put, make him our number one priority, when we put all of our attention on him, we recognize there is incredible freedom in discipleship. But we have to change our values. 
but think about what Jesus has to offer. Jesus is looking at every single person in this room and all of you online and saying, I have chosen you as sons and daughters. There is no condemnation in Jesus. I'm going to forgive all of your sins. In Jesus, all of God's promises are yes and amen. You are accepted and loved and spiritually rich beyond all we can imagine. Jesus says, just put me first. So what's he gonna say to lucky contestant number three? Picking up in verse 61. Yet another person said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Did you notice how in each of these three interactions, Jesus seems to be getting more and more harsh? To the first guy, he says, look, you can follow me and I welcome it, but it's gonna be really hard. To the second guy, he says, I know you love your family. You have to put me first. To the third, he says, we don't have time to say goodbye. I really appreciate how one commentator describes this passage. In order to drive home the point, he says, exaggeration is employed. There's nothing wrong with having a house or a bed. There's nothing wrong with taking care of one's parents. Neither is there anything wrong with showing love and respect to one's family. What Jesus is teaching, however, is that if those things mean too much to a person, that person will find discipleship too demanding and too costly. There's a cost to discipleship. It's a cost we must consider. We need to put Jesus first. No more excuses. Take another look at verses 59 and 61 and you'll see that these two men are actually quite similar in their thought. Both of these men say they'll follow Jesus, but what's next out of their mind? Let me first. Let me first go bury my father. Let me first go say goodbye to my family. They're making excuses. But how many times do we do the exact same thing? God, I'm all in for 90 minutes on Sunday. God, I will give you these areas of, your, of my life, but this area over here, these two areas over here, you can't touch those. I've got it. God, let me first get my business under the way. God, let me first make sure I can get married and start a family. God, I'll follow you, but just don't make me go to the mission field. And we put up all these excuses. First, let me do this. If only help me do that. I hear you, but no more excuses. Jesus closes the passage of scripture with a farming analogy of plowing a field. And he says the only way to keep the rows straight if you continue looking ahead, if you're plowing that field and you're looking backwards, your line is gonna be all out of shape. There's Old Testament precedent for what's going on here as well. Perhaps the most well-known story is the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And we get to see Jesus with God coming down with incredible power. And he does this power through Moses. And he casts plague after plague upon the Egyptians until the Egyptians finally say, just leave Israel, just go away. And so this nation of Israel, most people believe about a million people at this time, make the journey out of Egypt. They get to the Red Sea. They look behind them. They see Pharaoh's army coming. And then God once again opens the Red Sea and they cross on dry land. Then behind them, God crushes Pharaoh's army beneath the waters. They arrive on the other side of the Red Sea and Moses and Miriam sing this beautiful song to God. The very next chapter, this is what we read. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. 
but you have brought us into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Perhaps the most well-known, but not the most alarming. The most alarming is, I think, a book before. And in Genesis chapter 19, we are introduced to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God says, I am going to destroy them. Abraham, praying for the people, says, at least rescue my nephew Lot. And so God sends an angel to Lot, and he says, tomorrow I'm going to destroy this city. Grab your family and run. This is what we read. As soon as the angel brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. If you don't remember what happens next, we read in verse 26. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Don't look back. God has something so much greater in store for us. He is not just our savior. He is our Lord. We have been rescued from darkness and brought into light. We have been rescued from death and brought into life. We have been rescued from sin and found hope and freedom in Jesus. And God is saying to us, look at my son. He is a complete game changer. Do we believe it? My friends, there is a cost to discipleship. And part of that cost is no more excuses. I asked you earlier to write down on a piece of paper or to grab your phone or tablet and put down some of these ideas. So let's go over them again. And I don't want you to pick four ideas. I don't want you to pick eight ideas. I want one idea, one area in your life where you look to God and you say, God, no more excuses. Is it an ethical commitment? It's tax season. Maybe this is the first year you don't cheat on your taxes because you've been getting a little side hustle and that looks really good. But deep down, you know, I need to claim that money. Maybe it's a time commitment. And maybe you're saying, God, I love you. I need to be mentored by somebody. I need to serve my community. I need to serve my church. I'm going to make the decision to give myself back to you. Maybe it's a financial commitment. Maybe you've been giving the same amount to the church for years and you're thinking, you know, life is really comfortable. And maybe I need to increase that giving by just 1%, by a few dollars a month. Something to say, God, I want to give more of my life to you. Maybe it's a relational commitment. Maybe this is the year that you say, God, I know I'm in a hard relationship with a significant other, with a family member, with a coworker. I'm gonna go out of my way to make that right. God, this is the year where I stop talking about people behind their backs. This is the year I don't complain anymore. And over the next four days, we are encouraging you to fast and to take one meal off a day. Specifically, we've encouraged lunch. For some of you, that's not possible. We totally understand. For some of you, you might say, okay, I can give up the meal, but maybe bring a banana or something or a handful of nuts just to get you through that day. And this is a chance to say, God, here I am. I am going to give of myself. No more excuses because I recognize that there is a cost to discipleship. I'm gonna invite the band to come and join me on the platform. This past Tuesday at worship planning, we were talking about what kind of closing song do you say after count the cost, after put Jesus first, after no more excuses. And we started talking, we thought, yeah, Dave, 
pray, and we'll have somebody close. And I think I've done this maybe once in the last four or five years, but on Thursday, I called Colton and I said, Colton, I think we need to sing one song. And so the song that I mentioned earlier in my message, we're going to sing that refrain two or three times. First, let's pray and let's sing together. Heavenly Father, there is a cost to discipleship. Help us to consider the cost. Help us, God, to put you first. Help us, O oh Lord, to have no more excuses. That you would be honored in our lives. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might be the good news of Jesus wherever you take us, in our homes, our schools, our workplaces, our church, and the community. That you would be honored. That you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.